So I may have shared with you before one of my pet peeves, and, and that list is not long. No one's list of pet peeves is ever very long, right? I have been known to be guilty of sometimes being irritable if I don't make it for the opening credits of a film. Now my wife will look at me in moments like that and, and just look like I'm, I have two heads because she thinks the opening credits are entirely perfunctory. All they are for is to give you time to wash your hands so that you can come down and sit in the theater. I beg to differ. I would say the opening credits are essential. Essential to understanding what you're about to witness because you're actually, in my opinion, entering into an entirely new world that you need to be introduced to, you need to be oriented to. And so the filmmaker is as concerned and conscientious about the music, the imagery, the titling to prepare you for whatever two hours you're about to experience. So much so, I believe that, that there is even scholarly opinion on that count. Some guy named James Counts, in whom I read an article, he says this, the main title sequence, the opening credits, can be the most important moment in a film. There, see? It's in print. The opening credits matter because it is understanding the beginning that allows you to grasp the whole. We are, if you will, in the very last act of the book of Daniel. And that last act spans three chapters, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Chapter 10 is, if you will, the opening credits. Chapters 11 and 12 are out to share with Daniel and with us a concluding message. Chapter 10 is the opening credits that's out to introduce you to this world. And that is a world that you and I need to be reintroduced to all the time. What is this world? You're going to find out not only the nature of the world, but three things that are true about it. So I wonder if you might listen to another enigmatic text from Daniel chapter 10. The reading for today is from Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river that is the Tigris. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw this vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell on them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the words, 
I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and I was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. This is the word of the Lord. Daniel chapter 10 is out to reintroduce us to a world and then tell us three things about that world. So what is this world we need to be reintroduced to? Consider the setting. By this point in the book of Daniel, Daniel is in his mid-80s. He has served at least three different dynasties, uh, three different uh, kings of, of imperialistic kingdoms. And here in our passage, though, we find Daniel in mourning. For whatever reason, we're not sure. Not absolutely sure. We, we're, we're told that this is happening in the third year of King Cyrus of Persia. What that tells us is that it's been at least two years since that same King Cyrus issued a decree that would have freed Judah to return to its homeland, to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding. If you jump over to the book of Ezra, you know that in the first couple chapters of Ezra, Judah has been back in the land for a brief amount of time. They've had all this delight and thrill to be finally home again. They've resumed rebuilding of the land and they've already been met with resistance resistance that might just sort of call the whole thing off and so if you thought 2020 was bad it was bad for judah back in the land just when they thought everything was going to go well and things were clicking boom now they're met with resistance yet again and for that reason it would seem daniel is mourning and yet his mourning 
is perhaps even more deeply affecting to him than just the knowledge that there's been resistance to rebuilding the temple. Because it says there in the early part of the passage that Daniel is not only mourning, but he's fasting. And later in verse 12, it says that he's praying. And he's doing all of this for no a bare minimum of three weeks without, without stopping. Three weeks of mourning and fasting and prayer. Why? He's trying to understand what is going on here. They've been in exile for 70 years. And finally, they are able to get back into their land. And now this. And Daniel is asking the question, what is going on here? How are we to think or perceive of what you're doing, Lord, or about the circumstances we find ourselves in? And so he sets aside everything that might distract him from knowing those things. He, might, he does everything to, to avoid any sort of false sort of contention, contentment. And instead, he turns to the Lord. He's out to understand what are God's purposes in this moment and what that is out to tell us and to remind us of as it sought to remind Israel of in that moment is that we live in a world that is spiritual. That you and I might enjoy and delight in a number of things that we can see, taste, touch, or feel, but this is a world that is irreducibly spiritual. That's why Daniel has set aside everything that might distract him from that truth or that might provide him a superficial sense of contentment um, and therefore be continued to be distracted about that truth. That's his goal. And you hear that, that this is world that we live in that is spiritual and you might think, tell me something else I don't know. I really tithed for this? Uh, wh why bring that up? I'll tell you why I bring it up. I know that every week you and I uh, we gather to remember that we live before a God who is invisible. We live as part of a spiritual world. And in those moments where we would gather together and partake of the bread and the, and the cup, that is irreducibly an act of spirituality. It is reminding ourselves that we are spiritually nourished by consuming those elements. But I think you would agree that it is just as easy to live as though that spiritual world is not true. It is easy to fall into thinking and responding in such a way where we believe that our deepest needs, our deepest desires, our deepest afflictions have everything only to do with what we can see, taste, touch, or feel. That before we would ever imagine that this world is spiritual, we mostly think that it's not. And we can become caught in that sort of thinking. Daniel is here to tell us that this world, by his actions, is in fact spiritual. And that idea is true and can be experienced both on a deeply intimate level, but also understood in a far larger scale. Okay, what do I mean by that distinction? When I talk about the world being spiritual in a deeply intimate world, look, you and I value what we give the most of our time to. I can tell a lot about you, you can tell a lot about me, what I give the lion's share of my time to. And I will confess to you, I give a lot of time to and therefore value being informed. And that's a good thing on a certain level, 
And yet I'm the first to admit that whatever I value about being informed feels more like a gluttony of information than it really is being informed for any fruitful purpose. Sure, there are some purposes, but probably not to the extent that I go there. And what does that reveal? Uh, that sometimes I even can drift into believing that this world is something less than spiritual. Here's the thing, though. Um, you have your issues, I have my issues, but would we not agree or at least admit that we feel a bit depleted, to say the least, when we, we only give ourselves uh, to that which is of this world? Do we not at some times feel depleted when we refuse to give attention to the deepest things about us, to the, the deepest needs that we have, and to that which most nourishes us? Things that have nothing to do with anything that we might be reading, anything that we might watch, anything that we might listen to, anything that we might eat. All of those things are good. But surely there is something even deeper, as deep as a forest, as dark as a wood. That's the nature of being cognizant of the world that we live in as a spiritual world. Now, still, look, we are in that world. And if you've ever read the, it's a science fiction book called Flatland. It was written back in the 19th century. I think it was written by a minister. It's sort of a, a sci-fi story, kind of a mathematical sci-fi story in that it, it is about um, two-dimensional objects. They live in flatland, so they're two dimensions. And the, the narrator of the story is a square. He's named Mr. A Square. And he speaks of desiring to escape flatland and to get into a far broader and more three-dimensional world. Late in that story, he encounters, he has a vision, like Daniel. And that vision is of a guide, just like Daniel. Bookmark that thought. And that guide is a sphere, a three-dimensional sphere. And that sphere takes Mr. Square into this dream of a three-dimensional world. And along the path, along his journey, he, he has Square direct his attention to a little point. And if you remember anything about math, you remember what points are. Points are, they have no shape, they have no dimension, they're just points. And late in that vision, Mr. Sphere says this to Mr. Square about that point. Behold, a miserable creature. That point is a being like ourselves, but confined to the non-dimensional gulf. He is himself, his own world, his own universe. Of any other than himself, he can form no conception. He knows not length, nor breadth, nor height, for he has had no experience of them. He has no grasp even of the number two, nor has he a thought of plurality, for he is himself his one and all, being really nothing. Yet mark his perfect self-contentment, and hence learn this lesson, that to be self-contented is to be vile and ignorant, and that to aspire is better than to be blindly and impotently happy. To aspire is better than to be impotently happy. That's what Daniel's doing. That's not just a three-dimensional world, but a, a multi-dimensional world that he's seeking because he knows that this world is spiritual. And for him not to aspire to that world is to him to relegate himself to that very two-dimensional world like one who is a square. And he's not even aware of the broader, fuller world he's in. That's, that's our predicament. But how often do we find ourselves contenting ourselves 
with what is only two dimensions. That's a vision of something greater than us. Now, that is how the spiritual world operates on a very personal level, on a very intimate level. But, but we would also say that to say that this world is a spiritual world is to operate on a much larger scale and with much larger implications. There's a, a name I've quoted to you in, in recent months. Her name is Chloe Valdery, and she certainly has her finger on the pulse of culture and certainly on the finger on the pulse of where we've been in the last six months and all the social upheaval. And, and she recently asked, or rather said, by way of observation, it's interesting that the question of how do we get power is defining some of our deepest political yearnings at the moment when what would actually help heal some of the spiritual poverty we suffer from is the question of how can we be in service to and for each other? She makes this contrast between political yearning and spiritual poverty. And in other places, she even asks the question, why is it that we're so desperate to find political solutions to spiritual problems? She's acknowledging this deeper, thicker, multi-dimensional world that has a spiritual component to it that is unseen and yet is just as real. And she realizes that unless we acknowledge it, we are deprived, malnourished, and without hope of ever finding a true renewal. She is of the same mind as one in whose footsteps she walks, Martin Luther King Jr. A long time ago, he said this in a famous one of his speeches. He said, it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law can't make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me. Martin Luther King Jr. and others know full well, laws matter. But laws don't change the heart. And, and Martin Luther King Jr. is operating out of the same school of Daniel. That laws can matter, laws can protect, laws can restrain, but laws in and of themselves are never enough to renew the heart. That that which the heart needs, then the law puts in mandate. This world, at a micro level and at a macro level, depends on an acknowledgement of the belief that the world that we're in is a spiritual world and that there is a reality beyond that. And that is something we all have to reckon with. That's the only, that's, that's the world we're in. But before Daniel is done, he wants to tell us three things about the nature of this world, this spiritual world. So this first dimension of this spiritual life in this spiritual world comes down to what is Daniel asking for? He's asking for insight, for understanding of what has befallen this world and where is it all headed. And what happens? There appears before Daniel this one who is like a man, and yet he is dressed like a priest, and he has legs like bronze and eyes like fire, and whenever he speaks, it's, his voice is like thunder. So, you know, Thor, or something like Thor, whatever he sees. And Day Daniel's got a bunch of friends who are with him in that moment. They all flee. They all cut and run. They've seen enough. They've, they've had it. They've run. Daniel remains. But Daniel in that moment is, is laid low. He is brought to his knees. He has no strength in him. He is mute. Within a few verses, he is, he is raised to his feet by this angelic-like figure, whoever he may be. And then by verse 15, he's back on the ground again, his eyes to the ground, and he can't even talk. 
And he's acknowledging that I, I can't even speak unless you strengthen me. And in that moment, it's kind of like Episcopal calisthenics, up, down, up. But the, the Daniel chapter 10 spends most of its time describing this outlandish experience that Daniel is having with this angelic figure. And the question is, why? Uh, why give so much detail to it? Clearly, that this one has come to give Daniel an answer to his prayers, to, to provide him a message that explains to him where things are and where things are headed. But Daniel chapter 10 doesn't even get into that message at all. It just describes the experience. Why? I think it might have for us, in terms of relevance, a first truth about this spiritual life and this spiritual world. And that truth is that there is a range to it a range to this spiritual life. And by that I mean it is not one that the experience of it is not always the same. That there are things that occur within it that are as diametrically different from one another as is the night from the day. Because even in those few moments, however long they lasted between Daniel and this angelic figure, he is deeply disoriented, brought to his knees, and then in another moment he is found a profound serenity in the presence of this one who has come on behalf of in the name of God. He is, he is brought low, stripped bare like one of these trees, and in another moment he is raised up, raised up like he's floating. And that, I think, communicates the very nature of the spiritual life. It is not one. It is full of both turbulence and peace. And we know that even from other instances of those that are experiencing that reality firsthand. The first time that Peter is in the presence of Jesus, his first words are, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. The first time Paul is in the presence of Jesus, he doesn't know it's Jesus, but he falls to his knees, he's blinded, he can't see for three days. In neither of those instances are they being punished for being in that presence, but they are being awakened to its reality. And yet when it comes to being raised to your feet and, and literally soaring upon the heights, it is, it is Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 12 when he is too humble to ascribe to him an experience that we believe he really had, but he just didn't want to say, he didn't want to associate himself with it so that he, he wouldn't you know, cast himself as more than what he is. He's too humble to, to take credit for the experience, and yet it was too powerful for him not to leave it out. That experiences across within people and, and across different people is all to help us know that the spiritual life in this spiritual world is not one. It is sometimes full of darkness and sometimes full of great light. It is sometimes full of great turbulence and sometimes of an unrelenting peace. And, and you and I hear that and, and we may think to ourselves, yeah, but um, look, that was then. Um, we know better. Um, we've seen a lot more. Um, we just have this intuition that that kind of stuff and, and those who describe it are probably, you know, connecting some dots that they shouldn't. You know, if I were to, if I were to pull all of you who are watching this or who might come and worship with us on any given Sunday, it is quite possible that you have had experiences of, of profound disorientation or other experiences of profound delight and and you can only attribute that to the hand of God being upon you. That you have felt his hand heavy upon you, or you have felt lightened in your being like nothing else can, like no affirmation or achievement can provide. And that was the nature of the experience that you were in. That was the serenity. That was the turbulence. And look, um, in our scientific world, 
Is it possible that experiences like that can be imagined? Sure. Is it possible that people misinterpret those experiences, some sort of physical, psychological, physiological thing that they immediately chalk up to the spiritual world? Is that possible? Sure. Does that automatically rule out of hand experiences that can have no better explanation than some sort of connection with something greater than themselves? Why throw that out? Look, it's not just those who share a faith in Jesus who will speak without equivocation, without hesitation of experiences they've had of something that is greater than what you can see, taste, touch, or feel. And where did those experiences come from? I don't know. Oftentimes, where those experiences lead can be a hint as to what origin they come from. But in all of those instances, what we're out to learn, both from Daniel and as we reflect upon them, is that, look, this world, this spiritual world, and the experiences that we might have of it, there's a range to it. And we have to reckon with that. A range to it in terms of great turbulence and great serenity, but note very clearly, if you've been studying the entire book of Daniel, then you realize that what experience Daniel is having in Daniel chapter 10 is not like other experiences he's had in the other parts of the book. In other parts of the book, he's just sort of doing his unremarkable living before the face of God. No bright lights, no funny visions, no figures dressed in linen shooting blazing light from their eyes, just prayer. In which case, we say that the spiritual life is arranged to it not only in terms of great serenity and great turbulence, but also in times of great unremarkable character and sometimes maybe of a remarkable character. There's a range to it. And we have to reckon with that if we're to understand that this world that we're in that's spiritual. The, the second thing, though, comes down to something that is rather remarkable. And, and it all arises from some of the things that this angelic figure says to Daniel almost in passing, right? We know why he's come. He says why he's come. I'm here to deliver a message. I'm here to answer your prayers for insight into the purposes of God behind all of this. But before he goes any further, he mentions the fact that he would have been here sooner, but he was delayed. He was detained. And in being detained, he was being detained by some other force that he was contending with in Persia. Okay, weird, wild stuff. He's talking about political, geopolitical issues that he's facing, and here's an angelic figure. What, what is this out to suggest to us as we hear this weird, wild stuff that we're not accustomed to hearing? That, yes, there is a, there is a range to the spiritual life, but there is also conflict within it. Maybe conflict behind it. That there are things that occur that we cannot see, that are turbulent, that are contentious, and yet they are real. And you hear that, and you think to yourself, gosh, if I'm ever at a neighborhood barbecue again in the backyard, and I bring up the whole idea of spiritual world, um, you, you know what they're going to say. You know how they're going to look. And, and someone even might say, maybe we could talk about something less controversial. I don't know, like politics, right? You go there, that's what you're bound to incur. And yet, friends, what you're hearing in Daniel's experience with this angelic figure who, who says that he was in, in some sort of pitched battle with some other figure like him and which the archangel Michael had come to assist him in, I'm telling you, it's all in there blowing your mind, right? This is nothing that we haven't already heard from somebody like the Apostle Paul. What does the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look, Paul doesn't find a demon under every rock. He knows the difference, if you'll just listen to his words, between when he's dealing with people and when he's dealing with something in a much different register. But he has a category for dealing with things that are not just the corruptions of humanity and things that are actually what he terms the princes and principalities, the powers and principalities of this world. And what is true of Paul is true of Jesus. He has temptations in Luke 4, and that's not with his imagination. It's with something real. It's with something personal. He says to his disciples, I saw Satan falling like thunder from heaven. He says unto Peter, when Peter doesn't get it, and when Peter begins to almost be a proxy for his adversary, he gets, get behind me, Satan. So in all of these instances, there is an unseen conflict that is perhaps inaccessible to us in a lot of ways, but still real. And all of that, I know, is, is remarkable in its own self, and, and yet can be a difficult way of uh, contending or even thinking about those things. And, and you go there and you realize, you know, what do I do with that? Let me, let me take uh, this rather large topic about war and the spirit and all that and kind of reduce it down to something that is par- perhaps far more familiar. Something that you and I contend with on a regular basis that, that might be for us the greatest spiritual battle we will fight for the entirety of our lives. And it comes down to our very orientation to all things, how we see ourselves and how we see the world. And, and to get there, I want to go back to Flatland for a second. Because in the dedication of that book, you hear kind of the spirit behind it when Mr. Abbott, who wrote the book, says this, Even as he was initiated into the mysteries of three dimensions, having been previously conversant with only two, so the citizens of that celestial region may aspire yet higher and higher to the secrets of four, five, or even six dimensions, thereby contributing to the enlargement of the imagination and the possible development of that most rare and excellent gift of modesty. What was the consequence of being awakened to an even fuller reality? It was to be given a gift. And that gift was to be unburdened of this one thing that we carry around on our backs like a footlocker all the time, namely the fixation upon the self. Who am I? What am I worth? Do I matter? Will anybody notice? What will have I achieved? How do I live without regret? All of those are questions that flood through our brains all the time, and they all represent a fixation upon the self. And it is in that pride and in that self-focus that we are enslaved to it, and it is that place where we find the, perhaps the greatest spiritual battle within us. So you may feel uncomfortable about, you know, territorial spirits and and spiritual war, why don't you just dip your toe in the water for just a minute and consider that the one thing that you and I most contend with most often is the fixation upon the self. We want to be unburdened by it. If you were part of our study on generous justice, then you, you may remember that towards the end of that book in talking about what, how does the, the belief that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, what, what implications does that have for us to contend for that which is just in our world? And the one thing that, that the author of that book landed on was the importance of beauty. That in the midst of anyone's particular form of despair, what that despair usually uh, reveals is is an intractable focus upon the self and our circumstances that we just can't let go of. And sometimes we behold a picture of beauty 
And when we take that beauty in, sometimes in ways that we can't explain the delight, it takes that focus off of us and we are delivered, we are freed. That's what it means to reckon with and respect the notion that in this spiritual life of the spiritual world, there is a conflict that goes within, that goes on unseen, that's real. And that's what gets us to this last thing, this last nature, this last aspect of the spiritual life. Yes, there's a range to it, and yes, there's a conflict behind it, but there's one other thing. And in order to get that one other thing, we have to consider a voice, a voice that we need, a voice that is poignant to speak to us something profound. Like a mother who is dying in this film or this scene from the film Cinderella. young girl. She's losing her mother. She's about to enter into a world that she never would have dreamt of finding, a world in which she'll be caught up with a, with a stepmother that absolutely despises her. And yet it is those words, those poignant words, that she would be brave, have courage, and to be kind. It's those words that had power for her all her life and allowed her still to hope. She needed assistance because she was about to walk into what was going to be a very dark wood. And she would need a light. In this text, at the end of it, what is this angelic figure to Daniel? He is more than this fearsome presence. He is more than just a messenger. He is one who has come to provide Daniel a certain word of encouragement. He tells Daniel, I'm here to answer your prayers. But he says there in verse 12, I've come to speak to you. I've come to remind you that you are mine and that I've come to answer you. And he says there in verse 12, fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart, your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have become, I have come because of your words. And then in just a few verses later, you hear him say again to Daniel what Daniel has also heard in Daniel chapter 9, O one greatly loved. In that moment, Daniel receives before any kind of insight or message about the purposes of God, both in the near term and in the far term, he needs to hear something about the present world. And that is this word that he needs, that he has a reason for courage and that he is greatly loved. 
that he may have courage and be kind because he has been treated with a kindness that is without parallel. Friends, Daniel needed assistance to walk through this dark wood of the spiritual life. And that should sound familiar because it is that angelic figure that was for him a guide, an advocate, and a warrior. And that is precisely what the Lord Jesus is for us in this same world, the same sometimes dark, sometimes brilliant spiritual life. We need one who will remind us that there is a reason for courage and that there is a place for being kind because he has shown us the ultimate kindness by entering into our condition and entering into our death that we might be rescued from it. This is the world we find ourselves in. This is the hope that we have. And it is that hope that comes to us by this assistance, an assistance that we need, an assistance that is provided for us. This is our world. This is the spiritual life. And it is not a life that we live up to. It is not a life that we check off boxes in order to comply with. It is a life that we are nourished by. And in that nourishment, we find our hope. These are the opening credits. These, this is the world we find ourselves in. This is what prepares us to hear a message that is far greater and far more important. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.